Amen. So we're in Gideon. We're in Gideon part three. And uh, it probably, we were talking about this uh, earlier, it probably could have been Gideon part six. You know, there's lots and lots and lots to Gideon's life. And so I'll try to uh, summarize here at the end the things that we see. So as the last several weeks have, uh, especially the last couple of weeks have displayed, there's a lot of interesting things that happen in Gideon's life. Uh, Pastor Tony had referenced this last week. We were chatting about the fact that it's interesting that the Gideon ministry, which uh, really does their very best primarily to get a Bible into as many hands as possible. You know, the Gideon ministry is responsible for putting Bibles in hotels and getting uh, Bibles. You know, if you go to a fair or if you go to some public event, oftentimes a, a representative of the Gideon ministry is there. And it's interesting that that ministry is called the Gideon ministry. Um, you see, Gideon is known for a lot of things. Most particularly, you probably know, and of course the last few weeks we've certainly talked about, uh, the laying out of the fleece. And so, you, you know, you've heard that terminology. Certainly, uh, he's known for that. And, and the miraculous victory, of course, that Pastor Tony preached about last week, uh, that included biscuits, clay jars, and trumpets. Um, after the service last week, I told Pastor Tony, I said, you know, I think that was actually the original Lambert's, the home of the throwed roll, you know, where they throw the roll. And so I, I think that actually happened in, in uh, Judges. And so we, we saw that there. And so we, we see these odd things that happen. I mean, last week, if, if you were to say, all right, here's our battle plan. We're going to take 300 men and we're going to fight 135,000 men, but we don't have any swords we're going to use a torch and a clay jar. I'm out. I'm not signing up for that. You know, I'm, I'm zealous and I like to try things, uh, but I'm out on that. And so as we get started here tonight, oftentimes in our life, God accomplishes his will in the most unexpected ways. We see in Gideon's life that God was doing things through Gideon for the nation of Israel in ways that no one really could have imagined. Now, we've seen God do this before. You see in the book of Exodus how God was very specific and he was also very unorthodox in the strategies or the methodologies that he used in the life of the Israelites, both to display his glory to them, but also to display his power uh, to the Egyptians and those that were around them. But it's normally in very unexpected ways. You see, in your own life, when you think about the things that God has done in your life, you would have to agree that you didn't see that coming most of the time, right? Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was a, a person. Maybe it was a position. Maybe it was a circumstance that you did not anticipate. And yet, God did something uh, most unexpectedly, uh, but most often miraculously through those uh, circumstances. You see, sometimes... This may look for us like a circumstance, and sometimes it may look like a person. You see, sometimes these unexpected ways can be situations that we find ourselves in, and we're forced to act in a way that we didn't anticipate to act. Now, I think there's a really good reason for that. I think that when we act in ways that we didn't anticipate to act, then we really find out who we really are, right? Because I can plan to act a certain way, and then what I'm doing is I'm presenting to you what I plan. But if you put me in a situation that I'm having to think off the cuff or I'm having to respond from my heart, well, that really reveals the nature of who I am. 
The same thing is true for people. There's been circumstances in your life where people have come into your life who've influenced you in ways that you never could have expected. Sometimes that's positive. I remember for me, uh, I was in the BSU when I was in junior college, and uh, there was a, uh, an ex-Vietnam uh, helicopter pilot who was the BSU director. He had one glass eye, and uh, he was uh, overweight, but he was, you know, so this is not someone who you would expect to be a fighter pilot, and, but here's someone that God used greatly in my life to influence me uh, for the gospel. And so you see God use people sometimes. It can also be on the negative side. You may have someone in your life who has done something wrong to you or around you, and you may say, I will never act that way or do that or say that or be that type of person. And so it's normally in unexpected ways that God begins to do things. Remember how God used Deborah in Barak's life that we saw in Judges chapter 4. But here's the danger. The danger for us in those circumstances, especially, you know, whether they're expected or unexpected, the danger is when we internalize these circumstances. The danger is when we internalize these circumstances or that we think that these people that God sends into our life are in our lives because we're awesome, right? We love ourselves. And so tonight, when I, you know, I thought about leading with a disclaimer, and so I guess this is it. Um, the disclaimer is this. I want you to be open-minded about you tonight. I want you to be open-minded about you because when I look at myself and when you look at yourself, you think, it's not that bad, right? Now, you know, it could be, you know, whatever it may be. It could be physical appearance. It could be spiritually. It could be attitude. There's a lot of different things that it could be. But the danger is that when we look at these situations and we make them about me, you see, the biggest danger that we face in our lives is ourselves, the biggest danger that we face in our lives is ourselves. Because we've bought into, and our culture is really feeding into this, we bought into this reality that we currently exist in is that everything is about me. We live in this meism culture, if you will, that we, we think whatever I want, I have to get. Ever how I feel, that needs to be affirmed. Whatever I want to do, that's what I should be able to do. And it's been a danger from the beginning of human history. Now, we're not going to go down memory lane, but you know, just to mention a few, Adam and Eve got in their own way. They thought they should have something that they didn't have that they thought they needed. The nation of Israel, you know, with Saul and David, and they wanted a man to be a king instead of God being their leader. And so Israel thought, I know better for me what I want, and so God, you need to give us a king. In the New Testament, I thought about the disciples. Remember that conversation where the disciples said, uh, Hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can one of us sit on the left and one of us sit on the right? Right? If you think about that, and it's really all throughout Scripture, is that we want to be whatever benefits me the most. Right? I, Jesus, I want to sit on your left. God, I, you know, with the nation of Israel, you know, we say, oh, well, God, we, we want someone that we can actually see because it's too hard to seek your face. Or Adam and Eve, God, this garden is incredible, and we have anything that we could possibly imagine. But there is this one thing you told us not to do, and we really would like to do that. You see, the biggest danger that you have in your life is yourself. 
Now, a lot of us believe really good things about ourselves, and I believe really good things about you. All right? That's why, I've, you know, I've been here for over 10 years is because I believe good things about you. So as we pick up in Judges chapter 8, the problem that Gideon has, and I want you to see this lens throughout all of, of what we'll read tonight, Gideon's problem is Gideon. His problem is Gideon. And so as we start here in verse 1, it says, The men, chapter 8, verse 1, Then the men of Ephraim said to, to him, now this is to Gideon, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. That's a good biblical language there for an argument, right? And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian and Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And so they came to Gideon, and they're mad, all right? They're upset. And they had bought into this culture of meism, that they were the largest tribe, and they should be involved in everything, and no one should do anything unless they gave approval for that. And so they come to Gideon and said, wait a minute, you went to battle with 300 men and had this great victory? Why didn't we know about that? You see, they're the largest and yet they had nothing to do with God's victory over the Midianites that Gideon fought with just 300 men. And so the principle that we see here right out of the gate is it teaches us something very important. Instead of engaging in an argument with them, which he could have, I mean, trump card here, I did what God told me to do, right? Trump card, God told me to do it, get over it. But that's not what he said. What did he say to them? He says, hey, guys, wait a minute. And so he began to, you know, hey, is, is the, are the grapes for you guys better? Aren't they better than ours? And so what is he doing? What he's doing is he is maintaining unity. You see, the principle is that unity supersedes recognition. Unity supersedes recognition. Because here's what the flesh wants. The flesh wants credit. The flesh wants credit. And so Ephraim is coming up to him and they're saying, look, you didn't let us get involved in this battle and we could have won and we could have gotten credit for what you accomplished. And so they didn't get credit in it. And so what did Gideon do? Again, Gideon could have driven a wedge and said, well, look, guys, God didn't tell me to ask you for help. That would have been painful to hear, right? But that's not what he said. He said, look, it's going to be okay. We're all on the same team. See, that's one of the things that I think sometimes we tend to forget is that we are all on the same team. Unity always precedes recognition. Sunday, it wasn't, man, this person crushed it or that person did an amazing job or he or she shared the gospel more times than anyone else. We walked away Sunday thinking, look what God did. Look at all those people and the smiles and, and the conversations. Unity is priority in the kingdom. It, it, many a church has been split over preference. And the greatest danger that we have in this church and every other uh, Baptist church or you know Christian church is preference. If I come in here and say, if you do what I want to do or I'm not coming, 
I'm already in, in, in losing stage. Because what have I done? I've made it about me. I've made it about me. Unity. What honors God the most? How can we work together as a team the most? And so what Gideon is doing here is he's saying, you know what, this will be a great opportunity for me to step into a position of authority and say, too bad, guys. God didn't tell me to tell you. But that's not what he did, which it shows, you know, good job to Gideon here. You know, I don't want to, you know, all this to be negative about Gideon. This was a great job that he did. So here's what he did. Gideon brought to the point, and I think the way that you can help yourself to always uh, pursue unity is Gideon asked the question, what is most important here? What is most important? Is it most important for Gideon that he gets the credit? Or is it most important for Gideon that the largest tribe is in unity with all the other tribes? Right? It's the same thing when it comes to preference. If there's something that I'm not getting, I have to ask myself the question, what is more important here? That God is working, that God is being glorified, or that I'm getting what I want? You see, God won with only 300 men. And Ephraim was not a part of it. One of the key pieces to being in the kingdom as it comes to unity, how do we get to that? One of the key pieces in that is lordship. It's gotten really quiet in here. It feels very tense. Do you feel that? I'm comfortable in those situations, by the way. It's lordship. Because here's the deal. When I... When I let preference rule over what I want instead of unity, I have a lordship problem. I'm not surrendering to the kingdom authority in my life. That's what's happening. You see, lordship means that you surrender your will for whatever is best for the kingdom. Disunity always occurs when I begin to have a perspective that is horizontal between me and those around me, and my perspective is not vertical. That is when disunity begins to happen in my life. We have all experienced this, okay? We've gotten off track, we've started looking around, and it's caused problems for us. But what lordship means is that I'm surrendering, not to those that are around me, but that I'm surrendering to that one who is above me, right? To Jesus. That's what lordship is. And so instead of celebrating what God had done... The tribe of Ephraim said, well, what about us? What about us? I, I came across this quote. I thought it was interesting. I didn't put it on your handout. But I, th- I did think it was worth sharing. Tim Keller says this. He says, are you living to justify yourself? Or are you living because you are justified? Man, that's good. Are you living to justify yourself? Or are you living because you are justified? You and I should be living because we're justified. There's nothing that I need to prove to you about myself. There's nothing that you need to prove to me or there's nothing we need to prove to each other. What we need to do is live a life that's been proven that Jesus said we were worth dying for, right? So am I living to justify myself? You see, this was confirmation. God had already told us in Judges 7 that they would do this. In Judges chapter 7 and verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. Pastor Tony preached on this last week. 
He says, there are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So God knew if more than 300 go down there, somebody's going to try to take credit for this. You see, sometimes in our life when things are going good, it's easy for us to begin to believe that I had something to do with it. It's true, isn't it? You see, a lot of people tonight don't want to agree because you're like, oh, that's me. And if I say amen, then they'll know that's me. Right? When things are going good, it's easy for us to think we had something to do with it. Because the, what the flesh starts to, it starts to recount all the things that happened and says, well, you know, that was good what I said. Well, that was good what I did. You know, I, did, I made a really good game. My game was the best game at the fall festival. There were more people, right? You know, we, there's so many ways for us to begin to think. I'm messing with Pastor Tony. Uh, there are so many things. <laughs> there are so many ways for us. <laughs> there are so many ways for us to begin to think when good things happen that I deserve it, right? I mean, think about it. When you get a raise or you get, you know, a promotion at work, you begin to walk a little bit straighter, right? Well, I am pretty good around here. They do really like me, right? And so we begin to believe our own lies about ourselves that, hey, I'm really not as bad as I thought I was. We were talking about that in, in D group. One of the greatest dangers for ourselves is that we would minimize sin, specifically our own sin. It's easy for me to point out your sin. It's hard for me to point out my own sin, right? And you're the exact same way. And, and so what they were doing is they, they said, hey, something good happened. wonder if it's because we're good. You see, the Ephraimites had just killed two of the kings of the Midianites, Gideon and his men had just defeated 135,000 men. And so it's clear that this victory from chapter 7 was God's victory by using only 300 men. However, some time has passed, and here's Gideon now starting to believe, well, you know, I did a really good job out there, okay? One of the most common ways that we see this in the church is when you first come to Christ, Think about it. When you first come to Jesus, when you first get saved, you don't feel entitled to anything. Think about it. You don't feel entitled. You know, when a decision is made and you show up and you're a new believer, you're not saying, well, now why did they do that? You're, not, you're just happy to be there, man. You're like, I can't believe they're smiling at me, right? If they knew half the things that I did, they wouldn't let me come back. Right, And so when you first get saved, you come in and there's zero entitlement in your life. You're just glad that you're forgiven and you're welcome into the kingdom. But here's what happens. The farther away you get from your salvation, the more the flesh wants you to forget how bad you really were. And so we begin to believe, well, I wasn't really that bad. And we start to leave out the parts of the story of which, yeah, I really messed that one up. And we only tell the good parts. And we only tell the parts that make us look good. That's what the flesh does. And so Gideon is starting to believe. Maybe I am pretty awesome. And so in verse 4, Gideon came to the Jordan and he crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. And so he said to the men of, of Sukkoth, uh, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. This is where we begin to see Gideon start to change the course a little bit. Now, it may seem like nothing to you, 
It's a very slight variation. But I just want to point it out. In chapter 7, verse 19, it says, Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of middle watch. Uh, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets, and they smashed the jars that were in their hands. Now, let me read that again. Gideon and the hundred men who were with him. Now look what Gideon says in in, in verse 5. So he says to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me. So they're no longer with him. Now they're following him. You see the little bit of difference there? And the officials of Sukkoth said, verse 6, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? And so Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel... And spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. All right? And so here we see that after accomplishing God's mission, what God had called him to do, now Gideon turns and he starts trying to accomplish Gideon's mission. You see, Gideon is starting to believe better things about Gideon. And so Instead of being satisfied with what God did, he's taking it a step further. And here's how we know. Here's how we know that we're doing that. How we know that we've lost focus of God's mission is when things become very personal in our lives. You see, when we begin to take things personal and we begin to make things personal, Gideon is making this personal in his life. And so in anger... Here's what he does. Gideon responds to Penuel and Sukkoth. And this is what he says in verse 8. He says he, it says he went up to Penuel and he spoke to them the same way. He says, I'm going to break down this tower. And so then he says, you know, I'm going to, he told the uh, guys at Sukkoth that he was going to come and, and whip them with briars. The men in Penuel, he says the same thing. And so in his return, what does he do? So we skip ahead to verse 16. It says, he took the elders of the city and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars and with them, he taught the men of Succoth a lesson. Have you ever taught your child a lesson? I thought about this. I I, I grew up in the country, so I'm very familiar with a switch. Anybody familiar with a switch? I've been switched a few times. And, uh, And if you know anything about switches, you you want to get a long very sturdy switch you don't want the switch that wraps around your legs is anybody else am i the only one who knows how this feels right yeah and so i as i thought about this i thought well i wonder if they had to pick their own switch because i used to have to pick my own switch right i get in trouble matt go pick a switch and so thankfully for my mom and dad there was a a entire village of switch bushes right beside our house and I don't know if they planted them, but there were a lot of them there. And so I'm very familiar with uh, the briars teaching a lesson. And so they show up, and, and uh, so Gideon comes back, and you know somehow he gets the elders out of the city, and he teaches them a lesson. And so in verse 18, we pick up in uh, Judges 8, 18. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are these men whom you killed at Tabor? 
They answered, uh, are you as you are? So were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lived, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. And so here's what's happened. He's caught up with them. And he asked them, you know, basically he's saying, why did you do this? Why did you kill these people? And here's what we find out about those people that they killed. They were his brothers. And so all of a sudden now, this is not I'm obeying God. This is I'm getting you back for what you did to me. This has become very personal in his life. And so he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. And so what he's trying to do is to humiliate them by by getting the youngest to kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, verse 20, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. You see, this has become more about vengeance than it's become about obedience. And so what Gideon is trying to do is he's trying to get them back for what they had done to his family. He is paying them back for what they did. Now, you know, I am not, of course, at all justifying what they did. What I'm presenting here is that when we submit to the lordship of Jesus, that the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign, right? We believe that. And so in God's sovereignty, what does he do? That God orchestrates what? Romans 8, 28. All things together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, right? And that's what the Bible says. And so what, what Gideon has done is he's taken justice into his own hands and he obeyed what God called him to do with the 300 men. And now he's taking it a step farther. You see, there's two problems with this. Number one, vengeance is not his According to Romans chapter 12, vengeance is the Lord's. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's what I can tell you in my own life where I'm a recovering perfectionist. That when something is wrong, I want to make it right. If you resonate with that, you know exactly how I feel. I want to make it right if something's wrong. But here's what I've learned as God has grown me, is that I can't right wrongs. And so the things that are wrong in my life and the things that were done to me or around me, I can't fix those things. And so some of that lesson has been very painful for me, that I would have to sit and what I, in my own flesh, remember my greatest danger is me, and so in my own flesh, I would in my mind believe because my flesh had convinced me that they were getting away with what they had done. But I I was taught by the Lord that that is not the case. Here's what happens. God works all things out according to his purpose. Either you believe that or you don't, okay? There is no gray area, unfortunately. So you can't be half in and half out. And so I decided that I was going to sell out to that and submit to the lordship of that. And ever how God works it out, He's going to work it out. Now, if I told you that I was 100% all of the time okay with that, I would be lying to you because I'm still in the flesh. But I still believe greater, remember, uh, unity is greater than recognition. So I still believe that someone else recognizing the wrong done to me is not as important as God's will being done. Does that make sense? And so what I have to do is I have to submit to that. And there's been a lot of things in my life to where 
as the way I relate it, I've had to eat it, okay? I've had to say, that was wrong, and I'm just going to walk away. And I'm going to trust that God's going to work it out. Look, vengeance is not yours. And I don't know if this is for somebody tonight in this room, but God will take care of it. Whatever was done wrong to you, whatever was said about you or to you, God will handle it. Because I can tell you this, he does a much better job of handling things than I do. Because they, they may would have gotten worse than they deserved, or they may have gotten less than they deserved if I would have handled it. So I'm just going to trust that God is going to handle it. So we'll rewind all the way to the beginning and say unity requires lordship. And so in order for the kingdom to get the glory, there's been situations in my life where there was, I could either retaliate and the gospel could be damaged or I could zip it and the gospel could maintain its position of authority. And you know what I did? I zipped it. I didn't want to do it, but I did it. I'm just being honest with you tonight. So if you're in a situation or when you're in a situation like that, it is not easy. But what you have to do is you have to say, God, I'm going to submit to that. Help me to do that. Vengeance is God's. And the second thing is, and I find this very interesting, is that Gideon is only repaying them when he is successful. Think about that. He's repaying. Listen, if you come and, and you do something to my family... We're going to fight right there, right? Don't you feel that way? You come knocking on my door. We're going to go toe-to-toe right now. That is not what Gideon did. Gideon is waiting until he's in a position of success. He didn't do anything about it before he had the power to do anything about it. Because success in Gideon's life is becoming his greatest downfall. You see, it's in the valley... It is in our defeat. It is in the most difficult circumstances of our lives that you and I can see the clearest. But Gideon is on the mountain right now. That's what he thinks. And so he's going out and he's getting, he's paying everybody back that he now has the authority in his mind to pay them back. You see, in success though, our victory In victory, our hearts is always bent towards self-confidence. Because again, we begin to believe the things about ourselves that aren't necessarily true. Pastor Brian preached on this two weeks ago. Remember a few weeks ago, even uh, as we started out with Gideon, uh, Gideon said, what about himself? And I'll reference this later, but he says, I am the weakest in Manasseh. So here Gideon goes from what he self-proclaims to be the weakest, to now he's getting people back. And, and here, here's really the wrap-up of, of this part, is that it's easy for us to remember when we are saved by grace, that, that we are saved by grace rather when we fail. That's easy to remember, right? When I'm in the valley and I've made a mistake and I've sinned against God, I love the grace of God. Can I get a hallelujah, right? When I'm in the valley, that's when I trumpet the grace of God the loudest. But it is equally as important, it is equally as important to remember that we have been saved by grace in our victories. In our victories, it is equally as important. Because here's the deal. It helps to maintain a correct perspective of your position and God's position. Right? Because if we start trumpeting our victories... And we fail to remember that it was grace, that grace that got us out of the failure is the grace that gave us 
that victory. And so what does Israel do? Well, they're, they're pretty elated about everything that's happened. You know, they're, you know, following God, not following God, following God, not following God. This is the story, you know, a circular story of Judges. And so they feel really good about it. And so they decided, Gideon, you should be our king. That's what, you should be the king. Now, Gideon, in some ways, he's, he's trying to do the right thing. You know, there's this battle in Gideon's heart. I can, I can imagine this as we've seen kind of two sides of the coin with him. And so what does he say? Well, in verse 23 of chapter 8, Gideon said, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That is lordship. So in some ways, Gideon has exhibited the very thing that God is teaching us through this, that unity is more important. How do you get unity? Lordship, by submitting to God. And so he says, hey, the Lord will rule over you. You see, our hearts, if you're honest with yourself tonight, your heart, your flesh, they've always longed for what you want, for your comfort, for your desire, for for the things that you want. And so what, what did Gideon do? Gideon began to take ownership over this. He began to say, well, you know, this is, this is my vengeance that I'm getting back. This is now my army. And he began to take ownership in these areas. And, and we've talked about this in the near future. We're going to have a, a, a sermon series. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what does it look like to biblically take ownership? What does it look like to honor God in stewardship, not just with uh, tithe, but with your talent and with your time. What does that look like? But, but suffice it to say, what Gideon failed to realize is that he was allowed to be a part of what God did. Listen, the reason that you are a part of what God is doing is because he allows you to be a part of what God is doing. He is in No way, I don't want to hurt your feelings tonight, I just want to be very clear. God is in no way obligated to include you or me. You are not a part of the movement of God at this church because you're awesome, which you are awesome, but that's not why, all right? You are not a part of this church because you did all the research online and you found the church that did this, that, and the other the best and you joined and God blessed your choice because you did a really good job of selecting a place to worship. That is not how that happened. Here's what happened. God in his sovereignty drew you in. I was talking to somebody earlier this week and they were talking about how God brought them here and how God used a baptism of one of their family members and they came and God spoke directly into their situation. That was no accident. The same thing is true for you. If you're here tonight and you say, well, God has never spoken directly to me, you are not listening, right? That's the, I mean, that's just how it is. And so what happens in our life is that we get to be a part of what God is doing. Don't take ownership and make it yours. Take ownership and treat it like it's yours, but submit to the Lordship because it's still His. Does that make sense? It's a constant battle to align our hearts and our desires under the Lordship of Jesus. It is a constant battle. Anytime that we look to see what we can get for our comfort or our guidance, you know, Gideon with the fleece or our dependence, you know, with the uh, several thousand to the 300, we have circumvented God, though, and we've settled for lesser pleasures. 
when we began to look to what we can see, when we began to to be comfortable, when we began to believe things about ourselves that we have earned or that we have done. And so, so Israel, you know, they want to make him king, and he says no. So immediately after refusing their worship, though, he sets up a place for them to worship him. You know, he's saying one thing, doing another, and he becomes very wealthy. And he imitates the ephod, which was reserved only for priests. And so Gideon starts acting like he's their king. You know, he gets them to bring, in uh, verse 24, chapter 8, that says, Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread out a cloak. Every man threw in the earrings of the spoil. And they weighed the golden earrings that he requested. And it was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. Besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it. And he put it in the city in Ophrah. Uh, And all of Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. And so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. And they raised their heads no more. And what you would think that God would do is discipline Israel. Right? That seems natural. That is not what the last words of chapter, uh, verse 28 say. It says, and the land rested 40 years in the days of Gideon. The land rested. So it appears that Gideon got what he wanted. You see, if you ended here, you would say, are you sure you're right on that? Did Gideon do the wrong thing? Because they've got 40 years of peace. So it seems like God is honoring what Gideon has done. However, it was not genuine peace. Because it was peace, it was peace, I don't think this is on your handout. It was peace without worship. It was peace without obedience. Now I want you to ask yourself this question. Can you have peace without worship? Can you have peace without obedience? Look, the way that my brain works, unfortunately, is sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll remember something that I haven't done. And I'll, you know, I've got to do that. I forgot to do that. I've got to make sure I get that done. Right? And so when the Bible says here for 40 years they had peace, well, there can be and there will be a sense of false peace. And so I want to pause here. In your own life, I want you to think about Am I in the season of peace? Am I in a season of struggle? Like what's happening in my life? And I want you to think that for yourself. Remember, this is about you and you thinking about yourself. Am I in a season of peace? Am I in a season of struggle? Am I in a season of difficulty? What is happening in my life? I want you to think about that, okay? And then through that lens, there can be and there will be a sense of false peace when you are not pursuing God. When you are pursuing God, your own way, there can be a sense of false peace. Now, I want you to think about it with me for a second. Why in the world, if I am not doing what God has called me to do, would there be a sense of false peace in my life? Why is that? Well, think about it this way. Just like a baby who's doing something wrong, but they're being quiet, 
as long as they're quiet, don't you let them be? I mean, that's, that's what we do sometimes. No? Think about it. I want you to think about it for a second. The same is true for our flesh. Now, now the Bible says that God disciplines those who are His. I'm not saying that God's going to just let you go off the rails. That's not what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that the enemy, your flesh, is going to do everything that he possibly can if you are not pursuing God to make everything in your life smooth sailing. He's going to make it easy for you. He's going to try to make you believe that what you're doing is the right thing. This sense of false peace where there is no worship. Because as we talk about in small group Sunday morning, what happens when you're following God, when you're obedient to to God, when you're submitted in lordship to God, the closer that you get to Jesus, what happens in your life? It's just like a mirror. The closer that you get to a mirror, the more you realize the imperfections in your own skin and face and everything else, right? It's the same thing with God, that the closer that we get to Jesus, the more we realize that I'm not exactly like him, that there are insufficiencies and failures and sin and all of those things in my life. But despite that, that's the scandal of the gospel, right, is that he loves me in spite of those things. But the closer I get, it doesn't make me more self-righteous. It makes me less self-righteous. It makes me more self-aware, right? Isn't that how that works? And so in our own lives, when things are going smooth and I'm not pursuing God, we can fall into a sense of thinking that I am doing the right thing. But it is part of the enemy's strategy to get you to believe that. You see, Gideon had began to believe what was not true about himself. He had began to believe what was not true about himself. He got 43 pounds of gold, which was the equivalent of 150 years worth of wages. Who needs that? What are you going to do with all of that? But in his mind, he began to believe these things. You see, the essence of all compromise and heresy is that we believe that we have the right to alter or to improve the revealed will of God. That we think that we can change. You know, God did not call him to be king. But he thought in what God called him to do that he could morph what God called him to do into what he wanted to do. Listen, it sounds terrible, but the truth is that every one of us are guilty of that. That we want to morph what God wants us to do into what we want to do. We want to do, we want to go the places that we want to go. We want to do the things that we want to do. Because remember, our greatest danger is ourself. You see, good intentions, they are not more important than complete obedience. You can have all the best intentions in the world. Well, you know, I just felt like it would work out better this way. Or I, I was really, I didn't want to hurt this person's feelings. Or, you know, I really, no. Complete obedience is what God has called us to. Submitting to lordship. You see, here is... Here's Gideon, the the weakest, he says in chapter 6, verse 15, the weakest in Manasseh, who has now made himself king. Again, remember, he's begun to believe things about himself that are not true. Guess what he named his son? He named his son Abimelech. And Abimelech means my father is king. So if you thought that this peace was God-honoring, He is thinking of himself as a king by naming his children, my father is king. And so the problem here 
is that when we begin to believe in our minds, but it hasn't transformed our hearts. You see, Gideon began to believe in his mind that he was following God, but it didn't transform his heart. You see, that's the danger, and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, is with religion. We saw it in, with Nicodemus here uh, about a week or so ago as Pastor Tony was preaching in John chapter 4. That in religion, what do we do? We begin to believe and convince ourselves that what we are doing is right. It's just like the Pharisees with the 600 plus laws that they began to follow. Why was that? Was it that God had commanded them to do that? Or they imagined that God would want them to do that? It's B. They started doing what they thought God wanted them to do. Instead of seeking God's face, they began to imagine the things that they thought God would want them to do. And so they believed in their minds what had not transformed their hearts. You see, Gideon said the right things, but he did the wrong things. And so Abimelech comes along, Gideon's son. He rises to power, and you know, for the sake of time, uh, he, he rose to power through false means. And we pick up in chapter 9 and verse 5. Uh, it says, He went to his father's house at Oprah, and he killed his brothers. The thing that Gideon is furious about, his son goes and does the same thing. He kills his brothers. And so Gideon went out and, and he married as many as he could marry. And he had a concubine and, and so on and so forth. And so Abimelech was born of that concubine. He's the only child uh, from that concubine. And so uh, Gideon has all of these uh, sons. And so Abimelech, in his attempt to rise to power, because it was never taught the submission of the Lord to him, he goes out and he kills his brothers, the same thing that Gideon was upset about with the Midianites. And it says uh, he killed his brothers, the sons of uh, Jerubbabel, uh, Jerub, Jerubbabel uh, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son, was left, for he hid himself. And so there's this one son who escapes. And uh, ironically, for what it's worth, Jotham's name means the Lord is perfect and blameless. And he's the only one who escapes. And so Jotham goes out to Shechem and he stands up and he, he gives them a real talking to. So he gets up on, you know, this mount area that, you know, they say would project out over uh, the area where they were all encamped at Shechem. And he said, look, I don't know what's wrong with you guys. Uh, but maybe you're following Abimelech because you just don't know any better. And you can read in chapter 9 what he says. And so he begins to explain to them, you can't do this. This is not what God has called you to do. And they did not receive it very well. And the way that we know that they didn't receive it very well is the Bible says that Jotham fled. And so clearly they're chasing him. And so they're, they're chasing him down. And so the major point of his, of his uh, you know, speech was, that only worthless people seek to lord it over others. He says, worthy individuals, they're too busy doing useful things to try to rise to power. And so that, you know, he's talking about Abimelech. And so they have this conversation where he runs off because they don't listen to him. And so here is Jotham standing up before them and declaring, guys, don't do this. This is wrong. Now, I want you to think about this entire picture here. All that's happened, God told Gideon to do something. Gideon goes out and does that, and then he starts adding things to it. 
right? I want to do this. I want to get these people back for killing my brother. I, I know I shouldn't be king, but I want to be king. I know that I'm not king, but my son's name is my father is king, right? So he's starting to do all of these things. And what is God doing during all of this? Did God, you know, strike down Gideon? Did God prevent these things from happening? Did God say, I'm done with you? That's what we were reading in, uh, we're in Judges this week in D group. And in chapter 2, the Bible says that God says, I will never forsake you. And we were talking about that in D group. I mean, think about it. All that Israel did to God in chapter 1, and you know, they, they did partial obedience. Weren't following, we talked about this several weeks ago. They weren't following after God. They continue to worship other uh, false gods. And yet God's response to them was not, I'm through with you. His response to them was not, you are a bunch of failures. His response to them was, I will never leave you. Think about that. So what hope does that have for us? Man, that excites me. Because it tells me I can't outfail God. And so here's Jotham standing up, and God doesn't owe it to the Israelites anymore. He's tried everything. He's done all kinds of things to try to get them to right the ship. And yet another person stands up before them and says, guys, you're going the wrong way. You should be following after Yahweh instead of after Abimelech. And so God in his mercy, in his mercy, he often sends a warning to call us back to himself. So if you're here tonight and you say, you know, I'm not following God, but it's smooth sailing. God is sending a warning to you because he's merciful. If you're saying, if you're on a trail like Gideon and you're saying, no, I got to get this person back. God is sending a warning to you because he's merciful. God is sending this warning out to the Israelites and he's saying, you are going the wrong way. Unfortunately, they didn't change course. And so what happens? Well, as every flesh-filled endeavor does, Abimelech ultimately failed. In chapter 9, verse 52, Abimelech came to the tower and he fought against it and he drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Now, he'd already done this at one town and now he's at the second tower and he's trying to do the same thing. And it says in verse 53, a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And look what happened. It says, when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. What did we say about vengeance? That all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Isn't that what happens, right? What happens to Abimelech? Did, they have to, did Jotham have to get up and raise up an army and they had to go out and attack him and fight him and remove him from power? That is not what happened. What happened? God took care of it, right? God took care of it. And the other thing is, I thought it was interesting here, it says, and when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone went home. So what happened to all the people that were following Abimelech? They went home. They left him. They went home. And so it says in verse 
56, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Again, what happened? God took care of it. God took care of it. And so I want to give you just a couple of things to ponder as we finish up tonight. You see, we started out and we said that, what, that our greatest danger is ourselves. That we would begin to believe things about ourselves that aren't true. And so the first takeaway for us tonight is this, is that God's people ultimately need a Savior who will rescue us from ourselves. We need someone to rescue us from ourselves. That's why it's so important for you to be involved in biblical community. Not in affirming what I like or what I want, but someone who loves you enough that is going to challenge the things that you believe, even if they're not true, right? Someone who's going to stand up and say what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. Because here's the reality. At the end of the day, you and you alone will stand before the Lord. And the reality is that not the people around you It's not the people around you that are causing the problems in your life. It's not. They are not going to answer for your reactions. You are going to answer for your reactions. You see, Gideon tried to blame Sukkoth. He tried to uh, blame Penuel when it was his selfishness that was clouding his vision. Oh, well, y'all won't give us bread. Oh, you're not going to help us out. I'm going to bring a switch back, and I'm going to teach you guys a lesson. It was him. He was on a mission that he should not have been on. It starts with you. Your flesh will convince you of things that aren't even remotely true. Things about yourself. Think about Gideon. He actually led, Gideon thought that he led 300 men to defeat 135,000. Come on, man. I think that's like 450 to 1 odds. You're not winning that battle. You had nothing to do with that. But he thought it. And here's something else. Your flesh will convince you of things about other people. Of making you believe things about other people that aren't true. And that's what Gideon began to believe. He began to believe about himself the things that weren't true. And so the reality is we need a Savior who will rescue us from ourselves. The Bible says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. I am not going to die for you and you are not going to die for me. You are going to die for you. I'm going to die for me. That is my sin. It is your sin. We need rescuing from ourselves. Number two, God may have been silent, but God was not absent. Forty years in false peace. God, where are you? I think every time I think of the silence of God, but the activity of God, I think of Joseph. Every single time I think of that. God may have been silent, but he was not absent. You see, the judgment of God, according to Romans 1, 18, says this, uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Everything will be made 
right. Everything. Everything. Not some things, not most things. Everything. Again, either you believe that God is sovereign or you don't. Everything will be made right. Every idle word, the Bible says, that's spoken. Everything that's done against you or to you or for you or around you, it will be fixed. It may not be when you think it or I think it should be fixed, but it will be fixed. That everyone will give an account to God for every idle word and every action that is spoken. So just as though it may seem that God is being quiet on the activity or, or perpet, you know, things that were perpetrated against you or whatever, it does not mean that he is absent. I can assure you that he sees it, that he knows, and that he cares, and that he will right everything that's wrong. I choose to believe that. And then number three, it is not our strengths, but it is our weaknesses that God uses the most. Listen, if we if, if this story was, I don't think it'd be in the Bible if it was, but if this story was and Gideon took 4 million people and they defeated 135,000 men, I mean, okay, well, you should have. I mean, you had 4 million guys. Come on, right? It's not Gideon was a great warrior and he took care of 100,000 by himself. No, he's not as bad as Shamgar is, right? He, he didn't go out. Look, this is about what? This is about showing weakness and the glory of God through that. Again, remember, our greatest danger is ourself. And here's what you don't want. I already know because I'm the same way. You don't want anybody to know your weakness. You don't. You don't want to operate in an area in which you don't have knowledge or ability. We don't, that's just our flesh. And I've been reading this thing on increasing talent. And it says that, uh, talent is grown when you reach the edge of ability, right? In other words, if you want to grow in your walk with God, you've got to stand on the edge of what you think is your ability, and then you've got to go one step farther. Because if you never jump off the limb, you'll never learn how to fly, right? And so if we're talking about this weakness in our life, what if, and, and we're going to rewind all the way back to the East Sanctuary, and, and I'll try to, as best as I can to remember what Pastor Tony said. Go to work tomorrow and tell everyone about your failures and a God who loves you in spite of those and a God who's working in the midst of those. Right? I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, he is crazy. Who would do that? That was, you know, eight years ago. But here, here's the truth of that. When you declare something that you can't, but there's a God who I believe in who can, what do you do? You take the focus off yourself and you turn the spotlight right on God and say, God, this is your time. I'm submitting to whatever you want to do. It's in your weaknesses. There's things that God is calling you to do that you've kind of altered and, and you've moved it into an area where you think you have a strength. But God is calling you into your weakness. God is trying to use things in your life that you don't think you can do because he knows you can do because he is going to do it, right? So you have to operate in the areas to where you say, God, use whatever. This is lordship, okay? It's dangerous. It's saying, God, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll do. You want me to declare the fact, you know, there are stories in your life of where you failed that really could help somebody if you would tell them. 
But how are you going to help somebody if they don't know? If all you do is parade around and talk about how good you are and you never talk about your failures, then guess what? You're not going to help many people. But you can, God can really use a story to where you say, I was broken or I failed or I'm not good at this, but I'll do whatever I can if it brings honor to God. If that's what God wants me to do, that's what I'll do. It's not your strengths. It's your weakness. We often think God can or he will use us in the areas where we feel most qualified. That's normal, okay? That's normal. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's a normal thing. We, we think, here's what I'm good at. God could use me in this. He may, but God often does the opposite, calling us to things that we are unqualified to do so that we will depend upon Him. That's how that works. It's to step out in faith and to believe, I can't do this. And it causes you to believe that He will do what He has called you to do. You see, the danger is in believing that His victory in our lives had something to do with me. It had everything to do with him. The Bible says that there is none who seeks after God. Romans chapter 3 verse 10. It wasn't me who decided one day that I needed to do better. It wasn't me who decided one day to set out on a course to find a Savior who could save me. It was a God who intersected my life. And the story that I tell is the same story that you tell, is that there was a God in the midst of your sin and failure and weakness and destruction that God intersected your life. And he said what? I will never leave you. That's what he said. In the midst of your failure, God showed up and he rescued you from your sin and from yourself. And he said, I will never leave you. And when he came in the New Testament, what did he say in Matthew 11? I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so you can walk confidently in your weaknesses. You can, you can be very aware of the danger of yourself because self-awareness is the first step to, to healing, right? Is to know, I do have a problem with this. I'm not capable of doing that. The danger is believing that good things are happening in your life because you're good. That is not why. You may be good, but that you may, you know, good things may be happening and you may feel like you've earned it, but that's not why it's happening, It's happening because we have a good father who loves us and who loves to lavish us with good gifts and who loves to work in our lives in spite of ourselves. So take the victories, relish in the victories, but make sure that the credit and the glory goes to the one who accomplished those things in your life. And be aware that at any given moment, you're one step away from you messing up you. Right? Amen. But we've got a God who's going to stay with us, who's going to walk with us. And even in the midst of our failures, he is going to love us and help us to get to where he wants us to be because he is a good, good father. Amen. Let's pray tonight. God, thank you. God, thank you that we can be honest about our selfishness and our drive to satisfy ourselves. And God, sometimes we can take good things and we can make them bad. Sometimes we can participate in your work and we can make it about us. And God, we want to ask that you would forgive us. God, I pray for every person in this room tonight. God, would you help us, God, to be aware of the areas in which we are a target of the enemy. God, would you help us to 
to shore up the weaknesses by other people. Or God, would you come into uh, those areas? God, would you work in those areas to help us be aware of that and to acknowledge that and God to submit to you because we know that greater is you as you are inside of us, God, than he who is in the world. God, we declare that we are more than conquerors. God, we declare that the living God inside of us is able. And so, Lord, in our own lives, would you help us, God, would you help us to be aware of the dangers of ourself and be consciously aware of submitting to your Lordship every single day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Don't forget to grab some boxes.